KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota dealers, committed to enhancing the driving experience with vehicles like the 2023 Sequoia with its all-new design and durability to take adventures on and off the road. Learn more at toyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. California becomes the first state to study reparations. We weren't officially a slave state as such, yet we allowed slavery to exist here. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Mark Sauer. This is KPBS Midday Edition. San Diego County starts from scratch on a new climate action plan. I just hope we get it right this time. Way too much money's been spent. Way too much time has been wasted. San Diego repeals a hundred-year-old seditious language law. And a San Diego Film Festival opens tonight, kicking off a month-long celebration of Italian cinema. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota dealers, committed to enhancing the driving experience with vehicles like the 2023 Sequoia, with its all-new design and durability to take adventures on and off the road. Learn more at toyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. California has become the first state in the nation to begin a formal study on reparations to African Americans impacted by slavery. The bill, authored by San Diego Assemblywoman Shirley Weber, was signed into law by Governor Newsom on Wednesday. It creates a task force to study what kind of reparations may be appropriate for the state to offer descendants of enslaved people and those who've suffered the effects of slavery. Supporters say it is a first step toward addressing the economic and social inequities that have plagued African-American families and communities for generations. Joining me is San Diego State Assemblywoman Shirley Weber. And Dr. Weber, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's always a pleasure to be here with you. Can you tell us how this task force will be assembled and how it will go about its work? Well, you know, there'll be nine members on the task force and it's a state task force. And so the governor has direct involvement with it, we hope, and will be engaged in it. So the uh, governor has a certain number of uh, persons he'll be appointing. I think he has five. And the um, uh, the uh, speaker in the house has two. And so does the, uh, the president pro tem will have two. Uh, there's some specifications in terms of what kinds of folks we want in terms of those who've had some experience, some research background, those who believe in reparations, those, in other words, so it's not a a committee to fight amongst itself about, uh, you know, did slavery uh, exist or not exist. It's really a a, a task force to look at the impact that it has had and what may possibly be some of the things we need to do to improve uh, the situation for African-Americans in California. There are many people who may be confused about why this reparations task force is happening here in California, since it was never a slave state in the 19th century. Can you explain? Well, sure. Uh, and, it's, and it's interesting, those, if you get, if those who can get a chance to, to really read the analysis of the bill, uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful analysis done by the staff at, at, uh, at the Capitol, because it really chronicles the engagement and the involvement of Californians in the slave trade. Uh, we didn't have, we weren't officially a slave state as such, 
yet we allowed slavery to exist here. We allowed people to bring their slaves here. We allowed them to insure their slaves. So our insurance companies made a tremendous amount of money on that. Uh, we also, um, uh, if a person came to California as a free state uh, they, and had been enslaved, they were sent back to where they came from. And so they were allowed for uh, slave catchers to come and get people in California, take them back into slavery. So California participated in it. And then as a result of that, once we did become a state and slave in, slavery ended, we continued to participate in things like redlining. We had laws in California that would not allow a black person to speak in court against a white person. Um, we had uh, we had some definitely limitations in terms of where people could live. Um, we there, so there were a lot of um, laws against African Americans. In fact, our first governor wanted to create a law that would basically uh, ban all black people from California, whether they were enslaved or had been enslaved or not. That he wanted to get rid of all African Americans in California. And so these things are public record. Will the task force be authorized to study issues such as school segregation and housing discrimination that happened well? after slavery. It, it, will, it will be empowered to look at the impact of slavery on that because even though you know slavery supposedly ended, we still had all of these things that continued afterwards. And then they impacted other things in people's lives. And so yes, the fact that we had schools segregated, uh, we had housing segregation in California. Uh, we have a lower, we at one point had lower funding of schools for kids who were poor and who were African-American in different areas. So we have to look at the impact because it's not just, okay, now you're free, you can go. But if you continue with the kind of negative things that are there, the educational piece, the lack of, of uh, opportunities to enter certain uh, businesses, the inability to basically own businesses and the kind of laws that were put in place to prevent African-Americans from buying property in certain sections of Los Angeles and San Francisco. So there were a lot of things that basically basically hindered the, the economic development, but also that hindered the academic development and the psychological impact that had on, on individuals in terms of what they thought were their options and opportunities and so forth. And it's really interesting because most folks don't think of California as a slave state. So when you think, oh my God, you, you guys are the farthest away from slavery. Uh, but nonetheless, slavery had its impact across the nation and in all of our laws. And, and so it will be interesting because if California can, can do this study and realize that there was an impact as, as far away from the East Coast uh, to the West Coast, you can only imagine also the impact that it had in those areas where there were, were slaves, where there was slavery, and where there were truly monuments of resurrected uh, in, 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 um, in honor of that particular uh, negative aspect of our history. So uh, we see this as a unique opportunity to help the rest of the nation begin to grapple with the issue of racism and slavery and the impact that it still has on the academic and, and educational achievement of African-Americans and began to talk about repairing that. What kind of reparations do you think might be appropriate for California to offer? Well, this is one of the things that, that the, the um, hopefully the commission will grapple with uh, in terms of, of what would really have an impact. You know, some people say, oh, does that mean everybody gets $20,000? Well, after 40, 400 years of of degradation, enslavement, and opportunities lost, and so forth and so on. Is that the answer? You know, uh, I'm an educator, so naturally, you know, of me, top of the list is education. So, you know, that everybody kind of knows that about me. But that may not be the only thing that people need to look at. We may need to look at how uh, people lost homes. So maybe we need a, a program to talk about home ownership because clearly, home ownership is the first step into wealth in California. Uh, most of the folks who have all their wealth is built into their home. Uh, if you don't own property, you can't amass 
equity and therefore sometimes the issues of loans or, or grants or even financing your kids education or whatever it may be is not available to you because home ownership is so low in some communities and we see how oftentimes different standards that apply whether it was in Chicago or whether it's in LA or wherever it was to African Americans with regards to trying to get home ownership and the difficulty that's there. Maybe we need something to begin to talk about repairing that and basically encouraging in some way home ownership among African Americans. So, um, so there are a lot of things that people can think about. I mean, we, we, we have a tremendous opportunity uh, because California is the fifth largest economy in the world. And, uh, and we have the ability and imagination uh, to basically uh, talk about it. We have the research institutions who can help us immensely. When the task force is ready to make its recommendations, do those recommendations have to be approved by the legislature? The recommendations will be done in a report, uh, probably accepted by the legislature and the governor. Uh, and then the recommendations can be dealt with individually, like any other report that comes out. I have been speaking with San Diego State Assemblywoman Shirley Weber, and thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. I'm excited about what we will discover. The county dumped its plan to address climate change again and is fashioning a new one. The action comes after courts struck down three versions of the county's climate plan six times in the last decade. Here's how County Supervisor Diane Jacob put it. I just hope we get it right this time. Way too much money's been spent. Way too much time has been wasted. So let's get it right this time. Joining me to explain the details is KPBS environment reporter Eric Anderson. Hi, Eric. Hi, Mark. Well, first, uh, what about the plan was the county sued over and what did the court eventually rule? Well, the county was sued because uh, environmentalists and even the state of California decided that the plan that the county had put forward, the third plan that they had developed, in fact, uh, was not adequate. It was not up to task. It did not reduce greenhouse gas emissions. It did not account for a smart growth strategy. And uh, one of the more controversial items in that plan was this idea of carbon credits. In other words, if there was development in the county that created greenhouse gas emissions, say a housing development in the backcountry where people have to drive to get to work, for example, uh, that creates greenhouse gas emissions. And what the county wanted to do to kind of balance that, to set that off, is to buy carbon credits, basically buy permission to pollute in the future. So they would be able to to balance the scales, if you will. And uh, what the courts found was that th that was not an acceptable plan. The county's plan would allow them to buy carbon credits anywhere in the world. And the court said, you just can't check up on whether or not the greenhouse gas emissions are being uh, balanced in, in that kind of an idea. And, and so the court said, look, you can't do this. Uh, this is not an acceptable rule. You have to start over and try again. And I think that's where the county is now. So you buy some... Uh buy into some project or, or give some money to something that supposedly helps the climate in, say, Brazil, and that uh, mitigates your problem uh, here. Is that that's the idea? Yeah, that's the idea that they were working with. And what local environmentalists were saying is, look, why don't you, why don't you uh, if you have a project that creates greenhouse gas emissions, why don't you have uh, what they call mitigation here in the county? So if you're creating all these extra miles traveled, that's creating greenhouse gas emissions. Maybe you support a project that bolsters a wetland somewhere in the county that 
you know, absorbs and stores that, or maybe you support a project that, that bolsters a forest that can absorb carbon and, and sort of balance the scales, if you will. And that's not what the county did at all. They said, look, we can offset these effects anywhere in the world, as you said, in a rainforest or Brazil or somewhere in the Congo. And the judge in the case said, look, that's just, this just is just is too hard to, to check up on. There's no way to tell whether the carbon credits that you're buying somewhere around the world are going to have an impact. And in the meantime, California still has this increase in greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, and that runs counter to a couple of laws that are on the books in the state of California that require the state to roll back the amount of greenhouse gas emissions uh, that are put into the atmosphere. Now, you spoke a bit about this, but tell me more about what the county's climate plan controls. Sure. It's supposed to do a couple of things uh, under state law. It's supposed to lay out how they're going to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. It's supposed to lay out how future development will take greenhouse gas emissions as part of the plan to reduce them. And then it's supposed to evaluate and quantify uh, where the potential climate impacts will be as development occurs. Um, and the county really, uh, in its first three efforts to put together a county plan, you know, you know, over the last decade, they've been, uh, all three of those plans have been rejected and the courts have said, uh, no, pretty strongly to this last one as well. And the county really hasn't come up a way to manage the smart growth or the development. The county's general plan accounts for smart growth. It asks for new developments to occur near existing services. But the County Board of Supervisors has consistently approved these uh, developments that are away from county services in the backcountry that create many more greenhouse gas emissions than a, a smart growth plan would. And uh, transportation is such a key element in all of this. They say that uh, transportation is responsible for up to 40 to 50 percent of the greenhouse gas emissions that the state creates. Uh, you may remember the state decided back in 2006 with AB uh, uh, 32 that it was going to try and, and really reduce sharply the amount of greenhouse gas uh, emissions that state municipalities are responsible for. And that's what kind of kick-started these this uh, demand for climate action plans. And then, you know, the state followed up with legislation uh, later that said, look, we have to reach these certain levels of greenhouse gas emissions on this tighter timeline. Uh, and that's where these climate action plans are really supposed to address the issue. They want to reduce greenhouse gas emissions uh, by 2035. They want to reduce them even further by 2050. And if there is no plan in place or if planning doesn't account for these greenhouse gas emissions, then it's hard for the state uh, to reach that goal. And I think that's why you saw the state of California file the amicus brief uh, against the San Diego County plan in this latest round of litigation. Yeah, the city of San Diego has a plan, the state has a plan, county plans to come. What's the practical impact of all these various plans on the activities of businesses, governments, all of us individually? Well, I think the uh, impact varies uh, depending on the municipality, but the overall impact is to soften the state's carbon footprint uh, so that uh, we don't put so much carbon into the atmosphere uh, and that reduces the impact of climate change as we move forward. So uh, I think that cumulatively, uh, when everyone is on board with a working plan, uh, the idea is that will allow the state to, to take steps on the path toward reducing uh, their carbon footprint. I've been speaking with KPBS environment reporter, Eric Anderson. Thanks, Eric. My pleasure. 
KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota Dealers, committed to enhancing the driving experience with vehicles like the 2023 Sequoia with its all-new design and durability to take adventures on and off the road. Learn more at toyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. I'm Mark Sauer with Maureen Cavanaugh. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. The idea of being arrested and charged with sedition, which is conduct or speech inciting insurrection toward the established order, seems like a relic from a century ago. That's because the Federal Sedition Act, established after World War I to quell critics of the war and the government, was repealed by Congress in 1920. The San Diego City Council finally got around to doing something similar this week. Joining me to discuss the unanimous decision to abolish the city's seditious language ordinance is Jonathan Markovitz, staff attorney with the American Civil Liberties Union in San Diego. Welcome to Midday Edition. Thanks very much. We'll start with uh, what the San Diego Municipal Code said about sedition. So it prohibited um, words that have a tendency to create a breach of the public peace in the presence of other people. The heart of the problem with the code is that it flagrantly violates the First Amendment. Um, there is no requirement in the code that the language that's being used will incite violence, um, that it's likely to incite violence, that it is directed to inciting violence, um, or that imminent violence or imminent lawless action is a likely outcome of the, the speech. Um, so it is a ordinance that criminalizes really just pure speech. Um, but the other thing to say about it is that it's an ordinance that whatever the actual words are, doesn't seem to have been enforced in a way that has anything to do with what sedition is traditionally thought of, which is an effort to overthrow the government. Um, sedition as enforced by the San Diego Police Department seems to have entailed things like officers who were displeased with um, people who were playing rap music too loud or people who insulted them. Um, there's really good, solid, uncontroverted case law saying that contempt of cop is not a crime. Um, so the, the police for a very, very long time have been arresting people or citing people, I'm sorry, for really nothing more than pure speech. And that is, again, just a flagrant violation of the First Amendment. Um, one of the things that indicates just how starkly unconstitutional this law is, is that it appears that nobody in city government um, had any interest in defending it. Um, as soon as the Voice of San Diego reported on it, the, the city, pretty much everybody in, in city government seems to have acknowledged that it was unconstitutional, that it was antiquated, and that it should be repealed. And so it's great that it finally was. The difficulty with that, I think, is that that only goes for, that, that only affects issues and people going forward. It doesn't affect the harm that the department and the city created by enforcing this blatantly unconstitutional law in what appears to be a racially discriminatory manner for a very long time. Right, there's evidence the law in San Diego really affected people of color directly. The numbers that I've seen are that 30% of the people who were ticketed were, were Black. Um, 
African-Americans make up only about 6.5% of the city's population. Um, there were dozens of different officers, according to the reporting, um, who issued citations under this law just since um, 2013. So this appears to have really been a systematic um, use of an unconstitutional ordinance. And one of the, the, I think, really key questions is, how did this happen? I was just going to say, what precipitated this? How did the law come about in San Diego? The law is is a hundred years old. Um, I think Voice of San Diego has has done some reporting on it. It's a relic of an era in which there was kind of unquestioned sense on the part of many government officials that it was permissible to to do whatever you could do to quell dissent. Um, and I think that 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 understanding of what government authority was is fortunately, for the most part, a relic of the past. Right. And uh, why do courts allow it here? If it's, uh, if it's against the First Amendment and unconstitutional, uh, why in the world uh, didn't a defense attorney say, hey, uh, raise these issues and, and stop these cases as they went forward? It's a really good question. And I think the answer probably has to do with the fact that the citations were issued as infractions rather than misdemeanors. So that meant that people weren't directly hauled into court. They weren't directly brought into the criminal justice system. And they probably, they may not have had defense attorneys. Um, they, the, the way that I suspect this became a problem, a very serious problem for a lot of people who were cited um, is if they were unable to pay their initial fines, um, if they were, issued later warrants for that failure to, to pay fines or for a failure to appear in court. Um, at that point, there would have been probably some kind of judicial oversight. But when it was at the infraction level, I think that a lot could really escape judicial oversight. In August, the police chief in San Diego told the officers to stop enforcing the seditious language law. And uh, the city attorney's not got any of these cases anymore. What does that tell you about the department's progress in updating antiquated models of policing that have disproportionately impacted people of color, as it said? I think the fact that there were so many citations issued for so many years suggests that there's very little progress. The fact that the, the chief ordered an end to enforcement and that the city ultimately repealed the law is great, but I think it probably has to do with just how openly unconstitutional, blatantly unconstitutional and indefensible the ordinance was. Once the city was called on it and once the police department was called on enforcement, I think they really just had no way to continue enforcing it and, and repeal was the only thing that made sense. The fact that this is one of many kinds of biased policing that have been documented in the city in recent years um, by the, San Diego State University study by um, Campaign Zero study um, suggests that progress really is probably not the right term when thinking about the police department and racial bias. Um, I think that if we want progress, then this is a step. Um, the city, I think, needs to come to terms with the harm that it's inflicted on the people who were cited here. So I think that it needs at the very least to expunge people's records. It needs to 
refund any fines that they paid. It needs to look to see if there were secondary charges, failure to appear, failure to pay, um, and expunge those records and make people whole, pay those fines back uh, or return any funds to people. Um, but it also, I think, needs to take a serious look at decriminalizing other offenses that should have never been criminalized. It needs to look at, at traffic stops that are disproportionately affecting people of color. It needs to really take decriminalization much, much more seriously. Now, council members didn't want to stop with just overturning this. Uh, they want to investigate why it remained on the books for so long and why police were trained to cite people for seditious acts. Uh, that's pretty important, right? I think absolutely. I think that, that, again, this appears to have been a racially biased form of policing. It appears to have been a form of policing that really just targets behaviors that cops found um, or that police found to be unappealing. Um, and there should be an investigation into how this was allowed to happen. How were the police allowed to penalize people for nothing but pure speech for so long? And were they trained to do it? Um, who trained them? What kinds of policies were in place that made this acceptable? All right. And I'll note both President Trump and his Attorney General, William Barr, have urged federal prosecutors to charge those involved in violence at protests with sedition. That's alarmed some U.S. attorneys, even as Trump attacks the integrity of the election with lies about voter fraud. Barr went so far as to suggest Seattle's mayor, Jenny Durkin, be criminally charged for allowing a police-free protest zone for a time. What do you think about that? I think that, that we're living in really troubling times and that the federal overreach in seeking to impose criminal penalties on people who are engaged in peaceful protest really strikes at everything that makes a democracy possible. I've been speaking with Jonathan Markovitz, staff attorney with the American Civil Liberties Union in San Diego. Thanks very much. Thank you. We spoke earlier today about a landmark reparations bill authored by Assemblywoman Shirley Weber and signed into law yesterday by Governor Newsom. On this November's ballot, voters will consider another proposal from San Diego Assemblywoman Weber. Proposition 16 is asking California voters to bring affirmative action back to public schools and government work. California eliminated the policy in 1996 by passing another proposition, Prop 209. KPBS reporter Shalina Chatlani explains that supporters of Prop 16 say it would help balance the scales, but some critics say it could hurt. In the 1950s, when she was a young girl, Assemblywoman Shirley Weber's family moved from Hope, Arkansas to Los Angeles. They had to. Her father, a sharecropper, had a target on his back. He was going to be lynched. The, the talk in the town was that he was one of these uppity Negroes. He fought for himself. Here on the San Diego State University campus, Weber recalls how she escaped persecution and eventually helped start SDSU's Africana Studies Department. She was driven by her desire to work hard and fight like her father, but she had help. I went to grad school because I was a black student. So that was an affirmative action program for a poor kid like me. Weber says when California banned affirmative action in 1996, 
poor underserved minorities were left behind because state institutions could not develop programs specifically for them. We can't develop a teacher training and a program of recruitment for new teachers based on race and the improvement of my schools is contingent upon getting teachers who understand the kids. Proposition 16 asked voters to strike the non-discrimination language in the state's constitution, but critics say that won't help with inequality. In the years following the civil rights movement, affirmative action was seen as a next step to reverse centuries of racism. But California passed Proposition 209, which said public institutions and government work should grant no preferential treatment based on race, sex, ethnicity, or national origin. You know, you can't give preferential treatment to one group um, without discriminating against another group. Gail Harriet is a professor of law at the University of San Diego. She says she's one of the lead donors to the No on Prop 16 campaign. Hi. We met at her home in Kensington. Just go cold turkey. Uh, you're not going to fix things by saying, well, we used to discriminate this way, now let's discriminate that way. The Yes on Prop 16 campaign argues recent protests against police brutality reflect how law enforcement treats black and brown people differently from white people. But Harriet says you can't solve discrimination with discrimination. That just perpetuates it forever. And she says underserved communities have done better. It's true, the UC California system has seen an increase in students of color. Since 1999, the percentage of Latinos has doubled and the black population has gone up by just under one percentage point. She says it's not helpful when students are admitted into schools they aren't prepared to compete at. It's a good thing when students attend colleges uh, where their academic credentials put them in the ballpark with the rest of students. But there are still disparities. While Latinos and Blacks make up around 46% of California's population, they're only a third of the undergrad UC California system. Autumn Arnett says that's because with or without affirmative action, we live in a racist society. We're not really good at acknowledging who we were discriminating against. She's an independent education equity researcher in Austin, Texas. So we know that across industries, whether education or employment, that white women have been the greatest beneficiaries of affirmative action. One 1995 California Senate committee study found that after decades of affirmative action, it was white women who ended up gaining most managerial jobs, not the people of color who were supposed to be elevated. Black and brown people have still not been able to see their levels of representation increase proportionate to their population numbers. Arnett says it's one thing to create a policy to give people of color more opportunities. But once they get to school or get to the job, they have to be given the support to succeed. People are absolutely getting more opportunities, right? You absolutely can't say whites only college. The detractors, though, are that maybe we didn't help the people that we set out to help as much as we needed to. Arnett says real progress can only happen when everyone commits to moving toward a more equitable society. Backers of Prop 16 say passing the proposition doesn't mean the work is done, but it's certainly a start. Opponents say affirmative action isn't necessary, and the work to level the playing field is already happening. Joining me is KPBS reporter Shalina Chatlani. And Shalina, welcome to the program. Hey, glad to be here. What would Prop 16 actually do? I mean, does it outline how affirmative action programs should work in schools and government? So what Prop 16 would do is to revoke Proposition 209 in the California Constitution, 
So that is explicitly what it would actually do. Um, so Prop 209 was a response um, in 1996 to the, by the California legislature to affirmative action. Um, voters, overwhelmingly over 50% of voters decided that it would be better than having preferential treatment based on race, gender, national origin, ethnicity, to instead say, you know what, we're going to be colorblind, we're going to be sex blind, and no public institutions and no universities should consider these factors at all in their recruiting or admissions processes or work hiring processes. So what this specifically would do is reverse the Prop 209 ban on affirmative action and allow institutions to develop programs based on preferential treatment for race, but more so to target people of color or women specifically in hiring and recruiting processes. Now, since the expert you interviewed says the old affirmative action programs did not primarily benefit people of color, why do supporters of Prop 16 think this time it will? Yeah, so the argument is a little bit more nuanced than that. So the the expert says affirmative action was absolutely helpful in the sense that it did help people of color because people in the country could no longer say, okay, whites only college or male only college or we want to hire white men specifically in this firm. That became illegal to do. That was the thing you could not do anymore. And that's and that came after the civil rights movement because we recognized that we didn't go far enough to just say, hey, you, you should desegregate because the human nature at the time was to remain segregated. And so affirmative action was to say, you know what, you absolutely just cannot do that. So it did help people of color. But the expert's point is to say we very much do still live in a racist society that does give preferential treatment to uh, white men in particular and, and white people in general. And so what did end up happening with affirmative action is that, uh, you know, one study said that, you know, it was white women in the end who ended up gaining most of the managerial jobs in California, not the people of color who it was intended for, but they did gain more managerial jobs. So there was a, a higher net benefit, but more of that net benefit went to white women. And that would also check out in, in college applications as well. What is the main concern of people who oppose Prop 16? The main concern is essentially a reverse discrimination argument, um, which is that if you give preferential treatment to one race, you essentially are discriminating against other races. Or if you give preferential treatment to one gender, you're discriminating against another gender. And so the argument is you can't solve discrimination with discrimination um, because you can't have an equal society. There's a concern among members of the Asian American community that affirmative action will decrease the number of spots open to them at elite schools. What is that argument? Yeah, so there's... A lot of Asian Americans that are part of the no on Prop 16 base who say admissions into college um, and recruiting into high level jobs, public sector jobs, should not be based on race, but rather on merit. 
And so particularly Asian Americans who have historically done very well in school, take lots of AP classes, get into very elite schools, say we should not be discriminated against because we work hard. Our chance to be admitted into a school should not be taken away and given to a student of a particular race who might not have as good of scores because maybe they didn't earn them. Um, and so there are a lot of Asian Americans that are in, within that base who say, don't take away our opportunities just because we're not Black or Latino. What does the polling look like for Prop 16? Does it look like it has the support to pass? It's still a little unclear at this point. So the Los Angeles Times reported back in September on a Public Policy Institute of California poll that around 31% of likely California California voters said they would vote for the proposal, while 47% said they oppose it, and the remainder of 22% were undecided. So while it looks like the majority of voters are opposing it, um, there's still that 22% that could flip it the other way. So I think we'll have to wait until a little bit closer to election day to really know. I've been speaking with KPBS reporter Shalina Chatlani, and Shalina, thank you. Thanks. KPBS On Demand is supported by Sally Ride Science, presenting Women in Leadership, featuring panelists Ina Garten, Michelle Hanabusa, and Margot Lee Shetterly, sharing their stories and discussing ways women can lead a better future. May 23rd on campus. Tickets at sallyridescience.edu. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh. Tonight, both the GI Film Festival and the San Diego Italian Film Festival kick off their online programming. The Italian Film Festival will be running all month. KPBS film critic Beth Accomando previews the festival with its artistic director, Antonio Iannotti, and executive director, Deanna Agostini. The festival has revised their tagline from being an Italian perspective to saying an activist Italian perspective. So what does that mean for this year's films? It means that uh, we really believe that uh, Italian movies are movies that can be used as a perspective to talk about issues and problems that are important for Italians and also for people for Americans as well. And so we selected the movies having in mind this general theme, activism. This year is an election year. We really believe that everybody needs to do their part. And, but our movies are not gonna be just about uh, politics or uh, immigration, but also about art, also about disability, also about uh, gender inequality, also about inclusion. All our movies and also most of our shorts are going to deal with social justice issues that are very relevant in contemporary Italy, in Italy today, but also believe us in, in America today. Well, what I was going to add is that oftentimes when it comes to activism, some people might be automatically going to documentaries or something related, yes, to strictly to politics or 
and uh, when we you will see the Italian perspective that we're bringing definitely has that component for sure, but also through our comedies and through some other documentaries, it brings a different type of um, lens. So that of being an activist in your everyday life, which is what we hope also our audience can take out of this. So the festival will be kicking off this Thursday with a film called It Will Be Chaos. So I have to say that is kind of a fun, daring, and exciting way to launch the festival this particular year. So what can you tell me about this film? It Will Be Chaos in particular is an extraordinary documentary about migration crisis. Migration crisis in, in, in Europe, but of course also in Africa, and of course also in the Middle East. In particular in this movie, we're gonna follow a family uh, fleeing from Syria and trying to reach, you know, Italy and then and then Europe. Uh, the two directors, Filippo Piscopo and Lorena Luciano, are two Italian independent filmmakers that have been living in New York City for uh, I don't know 20 years. And uh, yes, so we start Thursday night. Our audience will be. Uh, able to watch the movie for three nights, Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night, uh, and then Sunday morning at 11 a.m. Uh, we will host a Q&A, a conversation with Filippo uh, and Lorena uh, joining us from New York on Zoom and uh, uh, be able to have, you know, our usual Sunday morning conversation with the two, with the two directors. So I'm very excited about that. And uh, we thought that this was the perfect movie with the perfect title to start, uh, you know, this particular uh, festival. I had the pleasure of seeing a, I think it would be called a docu-film or docu-drama on Caravaggio that you guys showcased. And this year you are looking to another famous artist, Michelangelo. Yes, absolutely. So I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned Caravaggio because uh, this movie as well, Michelangelo Infinito, Michelangelo Endless, is made by the same team. Uh, the same team in terms of uh, uh, production eh? and idea behind uh, it's another extraordinary movie about an extraordinary artist. For us, act activism is of course about social justice, but also about art, because art has the power to transform our lives and has also the power to transform uh, an artist's life. And we're gonna see and experience that uh, for Michelangelo. La pietra resiste, si ribella. Spesso respinge, a volte a seconda. So we're, what we're going to see with Michelangelo is a, is a sort of documentary biopic reinvented because we're going to have two um, actors, one playing uh, an old Michelangelo remembering his life and work. And on the other side, we're going to have a scholar, a historian, that wrote a book about Michelangelo and all the other artists in Renaissance Italy that is going to tell us also, you know, insightful information. And what is really extraordinary about the movie is the, uh, the capability of seeing his work of arts in a way that we never experienced before. We're going to see the Sistine Chapel before it was, uh, you know, 
reinvented by Michelangelo. And then we're going to see Michelangelo at work uh, with that. We're going to see Michelangelo at work with the, with the, with the David. So it's quite, uh, quite uh, extraordinary, but also very informative. And kind of emphasizing an even more international flavor to the Italian Film Festival is Bangla, which gives us a kind of an Asian perspective through Italy. So, of course, we also looked for comedies that would still fit the bill of the activism piece. And so Bangla was just perfect. It's, uh, it deals with um, identity identity in terms of uh, where your traditions from your family, where you're born, where do you feel you belong, and the struggle between that. So a very young director, Fahim, who is also the main character of the, um, in the movie, is of uh, Bangladeshi heritage and but he was born and raised in Rome he has a thick Roman accent he's 22 he lives in uh, one of the most um, diverse neighborhood uh, in Rome and he's you know he's a musician he plays in a band he um, hangs out with his friends does all the things that Italian youth would do. Uh, at the same time, his family is very traditional Bangladeshi family and so very rooted in uh, their own um, identity. I had the privilege of being a judge for the Ristretto program. So talk a little bit about this shorts program you're running. Yes, we've been uh, wanting to do that for many years. And finally, last year, we started with this um, award. So we, we ask everybody, everybody here in the States, in Italy, in the world to participate to the competition um, with the criteria that uh, either you need to have you need to be you know an Italian director or deal with an Italian or Italian or Italian American theme. This year as well, we put in the uh, call for submissions a, a precise emphasis on social justice themes. Another news uh, this year is the audience award. So whenever you watch a movie on our uh, digital platform, you can score the, the short. And, and that's very important for us because we really want to engage our audience as much as possible. That was Beth Accomando speaking with Antonio Iannata and Diana Agostini of the San Diego Italian Film Festival. The festival will offer a film and discussion each week in October. KPBS On Demand is supported by Sally Ride Science, presenting Women in Leadership, featuring panelists Ina Garten, Michelle Hanabusa, and Margot Lee Shetterly, sharing their stories and discussing ways women can lead a better future. May 23rd on campus. Tickets at sallyridescience.edu.